everyone. Welcome to another Your Amigos podcast. I think this is number 261, believe it or not. Tom and I are here with a friend of the show, Matt Galski. Matt, thanks for joining again. Matt's also part of the uh, Your Amigos live faculty for our second annual meeting in Nashville in uh, first weekend of November. So getting close to that, looking forward to that. Matt, we did a um, podcast with you, I guess it was a few weeks ago, around CTDNA and bladder cancer. And it was wide ranging and we talked about a lot of things, but didn't quite get into a few topics that we want to cover today. So this is a bit of a part two. Usually Brian, what happens is- Brian, before yeah. you go any further, it's fair to say that this was from some feedback from some of our listeners. This is a very unusual occurrence because we normally get no feedback. And, uh, <laughs> well, not so, positive uh, feedback anyway. Yeah. So. I, I, well, I was, was going to say part, part twos are usually because you either screwed it up so badly or because- <laughs> People want no, more. there was a, a clamoring for more. People yeah. couldn't. Like, what would well, happen? That, not, you know this, Matt. Tom calls me afterward, and he's all distraught. He wants to redo the whole thing, and I have to talk him off the ledge. And so I, I talked him into a part two. A that's it that's a actually the real story about this happened. But. <laughs> so, so let's dive in. Let's cover some topics that we didn't quite get to. One of them being, um, you know, a, a candidate approach versus a, a panel approach when you're looking at CTDNA, a broad-based approach versus a patient-specific approach, and sort of the pluses and minuses and what settings you might think about which of those uh, approaches. So I'll turn it over to you, and then let's, let's dive into that topic first. So panel-based approaches versus t tumor-informed approaches, yeah. that, that's the question. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we're talking about biomarkers, right? And so for biomarkers, biomarkers need to be developed in a manner that's fit for purpose. And so it's really context-dependent. It's the question that you need to answer that defines what the best approach might be. And so I think there's there's two broad categories that we're talking about to start. One is uh, monitoring minimal residual disease. The other is what people sometimes call liquid biopsy or trying to determine whether or not one can identify targetable mutations using blood as an efficient means rather than using, using tumor. Um, uh, obviously, for the latter, um, a panel-based approach uh, could be efficient um, and uh, and could uh, allow one to get an answer very quickly in terms of whether or not there might be an FGFR3 mutation, for instance, uh, yeah, driving a patient's tumor. That's an approach that's very commonly done, as you guys know, in lung cancer, because oftentimes lung cancers present with not, not a ton of tissue available, and it just results in an efficient means of getting that information. Um, for minimal residual disease monitoring, both tumor-informed and tumor-non-informed approaches have, of course, been developed, and there are pluses and minuses to both of those platforms, and we can talk about that in more detail. Before turning over to Tom for his comments, I think there's a little bit of a dilemma here, though, that that is a, it's sort of uh, trying to straddle both of those issues, which is that I think for some of the purposes that we want to use a panel-based approach potentially to inform the presence of targets, like for instance, the neoadjuvant setting, trying to identify FGFR mutations, that, that would be a really nice setting to use blood, right? Because it takes time to do the tissue, and if you want to use a neoadjuvant treatment, you need to get that information quickly. So that's a perfect scenario to look for FGFR Three mutations in the blood, but the presence of FGFR3 mutations in the blood in the neoadjuvant setting might actually be a prognostic indicator as well uh, when you can detect it in the, in the blood versus the tumor. So I think there's lots of complexity here that we need to think about it when, when we think about using these different types of assays. So let's double down on that because this is the exact point 
around how you pick between the two and how the different approaches are being developed. The key is that if we're using an informed approach, we have to go through the process of testing the primary tissue. And that's great to some extent, but it doesn't get away from the, the liquid biopsy piece. So if in your trial you're looking to do a liquid biopsy and get rid of tissue in the future, then an informed approach is obviously not going to help you. And on top of that, if you're looking, let's say, for new mutations, so you're looking for mechanisms of acquired resistance, if you're using an informed approach, going back to the original tissue, you're not going to be able to identify new mutations arising with time. And so I, I think it's probably correct that panel-based approaches are better in some forums, particularly those later disease forums where you're looking for a new mutation or you're looking for a targetable mutation. But the big problem with these panel-based approaches is they haven't been specifically designed for urothelial cancer and they are relatively narrow. They're not looking at all of the mutations and they're not nearly as deep as the informed approach. So you're going to end up missing a whole load of mutations and particularly if the panel you're using is not specifically designed for the cancer type which you're testing it in because as we know there are different mutations in different cancer types and tumour heterogeneity and of course the tumour clonality um, means the informed approach is also going to have shortcomings in those areas. So we did a study called Biscay, which was a, I would describe it as partly successful. Uh, and in Biscay, what we did is we looked at Juvalimab and we looked at a series of arms, one with Juvalimab plus PARP inhibition, um, Juvalimab plus, you know, other, um, other arms as yep. well, FGF, of course. And we, and it was the AstraZeneca folks, and they did, a, I think they did an amazing job. And in that study, they looked at both the informed approach and a panel-based approach. And the panel-based approach was to um, test the correlation between the tumour and the blood to see the accuracy of FGFR mutations, which actually were extremely high. And I think that was the first study to say, you probably can, I might be wrong about this. What, one what of the was first that number, Tom? To say, actually, you can really... Um, what, how many patients were there? No, oh, no, was, um, what yeah, was the association? Positive predicted value of sensitivity and specificity well above 80%. So, for, um, for FGF, the association was between yeah. FGFR, yeah, uh, it was for FGFR, but we did it for, and actually it was much less sensitive, much less, sorry, much less specific for PARP inhibition. So there is variability yeah. across different biomarkers that you're looking for. But some of them you can accurately identify using a panel-based approach. And then, you know, the other potential advantage, um, and of course, if you do um, an informed approach, you can do the same experiment and you can look at the ability to find FGFR mutations. And it's actually the informed approach, which we also did that correlation, which was also high. And then the last bit is, of course, we then went to look for acquisition of new mutations. And with those new mutations, we then used a panel-based rather than that informed approach again, because we weren't able to identify those new mutations. So I think that's one example 
where and how I, I, can I interrupt Tom? How ask you a question? Maybe Matt can comment. How are there data from this trial or other about the occurrence of new mutations? How common is that? Sort of as as bladder cancer progresses across the spectrum, is it ten percent of patients? Is it ninety? Are there data about? Because you said so you can't use. Go ahead. There's some there's some lung cancer data and there's some bladder cancer data. What we showed in the bladder cancer cohort, and the the numbers are relatively small. You know, individual patients. Mm -hmm tracking FGFR, we can show dropping with response. And then once you have responded, um, you then can show up with um, occurrence of new clones. And we showed it in five or six patients. We showed new clones in two or three of those patients when it come through. So I built to identify those new clones. So let's I just see. park that for a second and then say, well, why is the informed approach relevant? And I think the informed approach is really relevant because if you're monitoring response to therapy and you want to look at, you know, variant allele frequency or positive and negativity, you know, identification of two clones or zero clones, if you want to actually monitor the treatment effect, instead of using CT scans, you potentially could use CTDNA. And an informed approach is a very sensitive way of identifying, um, you know, it, it's, it's much deeper sequencing, more patients are likely to be positive, and those patients you can track more easily with a personalised approach. So if you're tracking treatment effect, at the moment it appears that this um, personalised approach is more attractive, whereas if you're looking for generation of new clones, acquired resistance, right. or you actually want to get away from tissue altogether, which is possible, then you could use a panel-based approach. And what one of our podcasts was when it, for listeners who are, who are interested in our back catalogue, for those of you who are, I'm sure there are not many of you out there, but we did a prostate cancer CTDNA podcast where actually they were doing whole, uh, you know, whole genome sequencing much, much deeper than we have done with these commercially available panel-based approaches. And that's probably where we're moving to in the future, but we haven't yeah, quite got the technology right yet. So I, I was going to raise that point to you. I, I raised it the last time we had this discussion, and I'm certainly not tied to, to any one particular platform, and we need lots more data, but but there is data in bladder cancer using whole genome of both the tumor and the blood from CTY genomics. Um, there's a paper that was just published or, or is on bioarchive right now. I don't remember if it's actually been published yet. Um, and, uh, you know, that approach obviously mixes a little bit of the best of both worlds. Um, you have the full set of information from the tumor, the full set in the blood, and then you use computational tools to really try and match what's going on in the tumor versus blood. Tom, you mentioned CTDNA re potentially replacing scans. Do either of you think we're anywhere close to that day where we're not doing scans or doing them much less frequently and relying on CTDNA? Well, there is a little bit of data out there in Invigo 010, which was adjuvant tezolizumab versus best supportive care in CTDNA positive patients. In that cohort, 40% of patients were CTDNA positive. And in that cohort, we also showed that those positive patients, 20% had normalization of CTDNA with tezolizumab. And those 20% didn't go on and relapse. So it's a good early marker. But we also showed in the same cohort, when you looked at the control arm and the study arm, you could 
very reliably see ctDNA occurrence pre-radiological relapse. And so it looks like okay. you can accurately identify using a person using this informed approach, you can right. accurately identify relapse of disease. Now it's not perfect yet, and the specificity and sensitivity of relapse isn't 100 percent By the way, radiology is not perfect either. And by the time you've got big lung metastasis, I'm aware. Every, every so how far away do you think? Answer the question. How far away do you think? Uh, honestly, I think these are complementary approaches. There's been lots of discussion about getting rid of uh, imaging with with many from me. I, th I think they're highly complementary approaches just based on what we're learning in sort of real world practice with commercially available MRD testing available right now. Uh, you, you, I think you need both. Maybe we can decrease the frequency, but I think you need both. Yeah. Um, um, the, the other. The other piece I wanted to talk about just before we move away from the panel-based approach is in the Danube trial. In uh, we uh, we published this in um, in European the EAU, the European Association of Urology meeting annual meeting maybe three years ago during the pandemic. Um, I fear that you may have missed it. So it was a small abstract, but in that we in that glamour publication, um, we actually showed you can measure tumor mutational burden from blood-based panel approach. And we use GARDEN 360, and we could accurately correlate TMB in the tissue and the blood. And on top of that, you might remember Danube, and we haven't talked about it for a while because I find it difficult to talk about. But in that trial, which <laughs> could have been positive had we got the biomarker right, um, tumor, you know, the hazard ratio for Dervatremi it's exploratory data in all the shortcomings. It's a negative trial, blah, blah, blah. But with Dervatremi, the hazard ratio was 0 0.56 or something crazy for blood TMB. Um, and so the, the principle that tissue-based biomarkers and tissue-based TMB is still the gold standard, and these circulating biomarkers need to really test themselves against the tissue-based biomarkers before we can explore blood-based biomarkers prospectively. I don't think that's true. I'm comfortable saying that tissue-based and blood-based biomarkers are equally important potential resources for biomarkers. And I think we should be exploring each rigorously and then picking the best one. Because what lots of people were saying to me in trials, they say, oh yeah, yeah, we'll do the exploratory work with the blood-based biomarkers, but it's the tissue-based biomarkers. That's the one where we're going to put the alpha allocation. That's where we're going to be based. And if the blood comes out, that's great. The problem is, of course, if the blood comes up and it's exploratory, it just remains exploratory for five or 10 years. And, and so we need to kind of move away, I think, from this tissue-based thinking. And of course, if that's the case, then that debate about panel-based versus personalized or informed approaches is really important because it's the panel-based approaches which is going to be relevant because as Matt said before, it's only really the panel-based approaches that you can do relatively quickly. The informed approaches take longer because you've got to get the tissue and you've got to do the analysis. So, so uh, where you going, Ron? No, I was going to say, I know we want to talk about each of your trials that are employing ctDNA CT to try and move it forward. I think you might have had another topic before then, but I often don't listen when you speak, so I can't remember what it was. Hmm. I've noticed that, and it's quite irritating, to be honest. <laughs> 
You want to talk um, about, let's talk about the trials. We didn't get to talk too much last time about each of your trials and we kind of touched on it, but I think we wanted to go a little deeper because um, I think they're both interesting. Maybe we'll, Matt, we'll start with you and you can sort of describe this upcoming, I think it's HCRN trial, is that correct? Uh, so this is Alliance. Uh, Alliance, sorry. And yeah. CTN trial. So this is- Brian, before we get there, why don't we do, if we did my study first, because I think, well, my study, the study I'm involved with, um, it's Tom, Matt is our it's guest. We should let him go. No, I understand first. that. We need, to be, we need to be ruder to our guests. I think we're going through. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think. So, I think that's appropriate. I think se sequentially or chronologically, I think that's appropriate. All right, fine. So, all right, Tom, study, please tell us about your study. I can't wait to hear. Thank you. Thank you for inviting <laughs> me, Brian, to, to the show. It's the last um, time, by the way. <laughs> Uh, to the study that I'm involved with, with a number of other investigators, the steering committee is large and there are 200 sites, all of whom are working really hard to try and make this successful. It's a very difficult study to do um, and it's a collaborative piece. Rosh sponsors the study and there are people like Viraj who work extremely hard on this. So it's, it's very right, important. Lots of people. Tell us about the study. Lots of people, not my study. Um, the, um, the study is the prospective validation of 010. And um, 010 was a study which uh, was the adjuvant study of atezolizumab versus um, placebo. <clears throat> we identified, as I said previously, 40% of the CTDNA positive, and those 40% who were positive had a eightfold increased risk of relapse. And the surprising bit was a 40% reduction in the risk of death for those that receive atezolizumab. So essentially we're identifying a high risk population and intervention with atezolizumab earlier appears to be associated with better outcomes. Why might that be the case? Well, I think those of us who treat bladder cancer recognize that once you've got measurable disease, particularly measurable visceral, uh, visceral disease, that the chances of um, pembrolizumab, atezolizumab, volumab getting control in time because I think it takes a while for these drugs to work because they're working indirectly via the immune system, unlike chemotherapy that's working directly on the cancer. The time for the drugs to work is too short once you've got frontline metastatic measurable disease. But much earlier, when you don't yet have visible disease, this MRD setting, it looks like that longer runway gives you more time for immune therapy to work. And it's my Tom, feeling let that- me, Let yeah. me just interrupt for a second. Is that really true though? I mean, immune therapy when it works in cancers doesn't necessarily take a long time, right? I think- Time to response if you look in so kidney I, cancer and lung. I don't, I'm not aware that it, there's data no, that it's sort of delayed. So I, I, I agree with, um, I agree with the fact that um, in some cancers, that's not the case, particularly in, uh, melanoma and kidney cancer, but in urothelial cancer, while we have 20% of responders, I think the reason why maintenance of Valimab is a positive trial, um, more so than perhaps some of the second line trials, is because the chemotherapy, uh, ooh. You there, Tom? Yeah, sorry. I was just saying, I think the reason why the maintenance of Valimab trial was positive was because chemotherapy is buying time, getting the cancer under control, essentially creating a picture like minimal residual disease, 
where the cancer isn't growing rapidly, and that's giving the immune therapy more time to work. I don't think maintenance of Alimab is positive because of neoantigen release. I think it's positive because the cancer is not growing quickly. And bladder cancer, it grows more quickly than kidney cancer in the vast majority okay. of patients. Okay. And I just don't I mean, think you've got that Pembro, much time. Pembro so in the refractory I, setting was positive, though, so that would... You, you yeah, know. but the results, I think the hazard ratios and the results were, I believe, were, were more modest. And I think I this additional so time is important. Comparing hazard ratios across uh, trials. No, no, hold on a second. Hold on a second. It's also <laughs> true. It's also true that 60% of patients in the control arm got second line pembrolizumab. Um, so, you know, the, and, and remember, uh, the majority of patients in urothelial cancer don't get second line therapy. And I realize this is a selected patient population, but this podcast wasn't really an attack on maintenance of adding that, Brian. Um, that wasn't designed that way. Okay, I'm very so happy, your, I'm very, your I'm very theory, happy to turn into that. Your theory is that in the adjuvant space, you can create this minimal residual disease state to allow the time for immune therapy to work better. Whether that's true or not, we can debate, but that's at least your hypothesis. I mean, that, that, that you're basically stating yes. the basis for adjuvant therapy. I mean, adjuvant therapy doesn't help patients who have no cancer. It only helps patients who have microscopic cancer, and that's what you're trying right. to detect. Right. Yeah, right, you're I trying to do it more eloquently. Yeah, much more okay. and, and much more so, succinctly. I haven't. <laughs> Matt, are you interested in hosting more, a podcast? We, <laughs> we'll talk offline. We we haven't got to my my again. Go ahead, we Tom. Got Tell to us about the prospective study. So the prospective study. Just before I get there, can I say one more thing, which I think is relevant, which I want, wish I'd I, said in the previous show, please. is there does seem to be a link between CTDNA positivity and immune biomarkers. So there's a link between CTDNA positivity. And PDL1 expression. There's a link between response to therapy being higher in those people who, in those patients who are CTA positive and have T effector type signatures. But there's also a link between TGF beta and mechanisms resistance in CTDNA positive patients. So it's not purely this kind of it's not just purely these patients happen to be positive and that's why it's working. It looks yeah. like there's a link between the biology as well. Now, that link is exploratory, but but it was being shown in a couple of different environments. And I think, you know, we need to look more into that because it may turn out to be important. So what yeah. happens is this trial comes in and there are other components, as I said previously, we showed that 20% of patients responded to therapy with um, a CCD clearance. I also said that we showed that the dynamic biomarkers could pre predate relapse of therapy. But inevitably, this was exploratory in nature. And so we then went on and did a bit of work in the neoadjuvant setting, and Michael van der Heiden's work has also looked at this. And this, again, is using an informed approach. It's important that everything I've said so far is based around this informed approach with Natera. And in the neoadjuvant setting, we could show that 70% of patients were CTA positive. And we could show that two cycles of atezolizumab, again, could result in CTDNA clearance in about 25% of patients. And we could show that those patients who were positive post-surgery had a sort of a 90% relapse rate. And we could show that surgery was associated with clearance in the majority of those patients that hadn't responded to therapy. So when you put these two pieces together, it really did point towards atezolizumab and CTDNA having a strong you know, a gravitational link with each other. But these are exploratory data, so there was a need to do a prospective study. And this is a really important study in Vigor 11, which looks at patients post-cystectomy who are CTDNA positive or 
become positive over the next year. We track patients for a period of a year. So they're positive or become positive, And then we randomize them to a tezolizumab or placebo. Um, and we are then monitoring them with radiology. And of course, progression is the primary endpoint of the study. And at progression, the control arm will go on. Many patients, I'm sure, will be unblinded, will go on and either get immune therapy, or I suspect, I hope they get chemotherapy and uh, valimab, which is a current standard of care. Um, and that part, that study, is to prove what we've shown already. And if that's positive, I think it will change the way we think about MRD and perioperative therapy in bladder cancer forever. And that's why I think it's such an important study, because if you don't need to have adjuvant therapy, if you're CTN negative, we're over-treating 70% of patients and it will make a big difference. And Tom, to clarify, all patients will be radiographically negative. Yes. yes. Right. Of course, yeah. if you're radiologically radiographically positive, yeah, you're, yeah, not, yeah. You're, no, you're no longer an and, adjuvant patient. And another point of clarification. So you said if they turn positive, they can be enrolled. So somebody could be eight months after cystectomy and turn positive and then get therapy? Yes. So you're negative, negative, negative. You're having blood tests yeah. every six weeks and then you become positive, randomized. And how many? Uh, it's just it's different, right, than most adjuvant studies, right? Most there's a window after organ removal and yes. you enroll in that window. So that's why I bring it up. So that window lasts a whole year. And I think that's why it's cool, because the way this could change things is you would be instead of doing regular CT scans, waiting for the disease to come back, you can actually catch the disease much earlier. And with that, you then, if positive, these patients wouldn't need to go through six cycles of chemotherapy. You could just give them immune therapy, which we've all agreed is better tolerated if the trial was positive and associated with survival advantage. And catching early patients earlier in urothelial cancer, I think, is really important. And I think the concept in 10 years' time of waiting till visible lumps on an X-ray before you give therapy will be seen as something of the dark ages. <laughs> um. All right, anything else you want to talk about that trial, Tom? I agree it's important. It's accruing now, right? It's yeah, almost so accruing. It's, it's getting there. 70% 70, 70 of the way through 200 sites. It's complicated because yeah. adjuvant nivolumab is available in many of the countries, and we obviously don't want to recruit patients who, or we don't want to randomize patients who will come off study and rather get adjuvant nivolumab if they're positive, and right. certainly in Europe because. See, because PDL1 is part of the adjuvant label in Europe, that's potentially the worst case scenario because we don't want to enrich for the PDL1 negative patients. Because as I said before, there's a link between the CT positive bit and the biology yeah. of the disease, and we wouldn't want to skew that population. So the trial is one of the most difficult studies we've had to enroll into. But you know, for those people who are taking part, I think it's more important than, you know, we've been doing seven neoadjuvant trials. Do we need seven? I don't know. Um, but this is the only. Well, Matt's going to talk about a second study, but this at the moment is the only study which actually is going to say, no, hold on a second. These patients don't need adjuvant therapy. And, you know, it may be the case in the future that patients need three cycles of neoadjuvant immune combination therapy, surgery. And if you're CTA negative, you need nothing else after that. One of the problems is the trials that we are designing are having this sandwich effect of a year of adjuvant therapy mm -hmm. after the surgery. And that is going to be over treatment for some patients.
Tom, is is your really is your study though really trying to determine who doesn't need treatment or who does need treatment? It seems like it's trying to determine who does need treatment because the, yeah, neg yeah, no, patients, no, so, the negative patients yeah. aren't included. Yeah, so I think when I'm talking about um, those, I'm talking about the neoadjuvant trials. That second bit, what yep. I'm trying to encourage is I'm trying to encourage other studies, the other prospective adjuvant and neoadjuvant trials to also explore ctDNA, not necessarily the same technique, but also exploring ctDNA, because it will be possible in some of these neoadjuvant trials we're doing, you know, there's a study out there, for example, EV and Pembro, three or four cycles neoadjuvantly, and then three or four cycles of uh, adjuvant therapy as well. And the question is, if you did ctDNA analysis and you showed actually the relapse rate was only five, uh, you know, of, of the CTA negative patients is only 5%, in that environment, you might say, do we need to give adjuvant therapy to, to those CTDA neg CTDNA negative patients? So Tom, last question for you, and then we should go to Matt and to describe his pending study. But if, if your study of this 011 is positive, shows what you want it to show, but, but a lot of these sandwich studies that you talked about are also positive, and we know one is already, do you think people will really use CTDNA or will they just say, well, let's give you know, neoadjuvant surgery and then adjuvant, you know, to everybody? Well, I don't think we know. So there isn't a positive neoadjuvant immune therapy study at the moment. Um, so we, we're waiting the results of, and I think there's Energize, which is the chemotherapy plus nivolumab, uh, and there's Niagara chemotherapy plus duvalumab, and there's also a pembrolizumab study. So we don't know the results of these trials yet. I suspect we'll know the results of the neoadjuvant trials before Invigor 11, because they started three or four years before. So I think it's very reasonable for you to say to me, you'll have positive trials without ctDNA. Um, and so how are you going to incorporate it into those positive neoadjuvant adjuvant trials? Um, I think there are two or three things. Firstly, we haven't seen the ctDNA analysis of the nivolumab adjuvant trial. 274. Um, I don't know if that work's being done, um, but it would something which we'd all obviously all really like to see because that would confirm the results of 010 with tezolizumab. That's the first thing. And the second thing is I think payers and I think patients and I think doctors, um, if you know after a ctDNA test that your chances of relapse are very, very low at only 5% if you're CTA negative, that may be an important part of decision making. And then Matt needs to answer this question, but I'm told that actually there's a lot of CTNA sort of work taking place already with Natera um, in the US in bladder cancer already. So, and I can see payers in Europe being interested in this. I can okay. see doctors and patients being interested. Right. So, I, so I think the results from Vigor 011, the ongoing prospective study, if they confirm 010, will be powerful enough to be translated into a broader setting. So Matt, let's turn to you. Um, this upcoming alliance study, I want you to just describe the design and how ctDNA is, is playing a role. Yeah, so this goes by the acronym MODERN, and this is a study limited to patients with bladder cancer, and we can talk about why, but it's limited to patients with bladder cancer. It's the same pathological eligibility criteria as Invigor 10 and Checkmate 274, which is patients who've had neoadjuvant chemotherapy and have residual T2 or higher disease in their surgical specimen or patients with pathological T3 tumors uh, 
um, or, or higher who have not received neoadjuvant chemotherapy and are cisplatin ineligible. We actually do include patients with lower stage disease in the surgical specimen as well who are ctDNA detectable, and I can speak to that. Um, so at those patients uh, after surgery, um, are enrolled and they undergo central ctDNA testing uh, using the Natera platform. Um, and if they are ctDNA detectable at that post-surgical time point, then they're randomized to uh, standard of care adjuvant nivolumab versus escalation of treatment, which is nivolumab plus the LAG3 inhibitor relatlimab. Uh, and so treatment's given for a year, uh, just as uh, we did in Checkmate 274. A seamless phase two, three design is employed in that randomization. So the phase two endpoint is ctDNA clearance. We're looking for higher ctDNA clearance than the combo arm versus the single agent. Uh, and then if that threshold is met, then that folds into a phase three study with an overall survival primary endpoint. If patients are ctDNA undetectable at that post-surgical time point, then they undergo a different randomization, which is to standard of care adjuvant nivolumab um, monthly for, for a year versus surveillance with frequent ctDNA monitoring. And if those patients on surveillance convert from undetectable to detectable, then they proceed with nivolumab for 12 cycles in the absence of, uh, of radiographically detectable disease. And there's a, a non-feriority design applied to that randomization with a DFS endpoint. Love it. You know, what I like about this trial is that it's kind of, it's asking a lot of different questions, you know, about escalation and de-escalation, right, in the context of one trial. Um, do you think there'll be trouble randomizing patients to, to no therapy, even if ctDNA negative, right, given the adjuvant NEVO data? Yeah, I mean, I think that we, we, we're we going to need to pressure test that when we open the study, of course. And in, in, um, I, I, I think based on discussions that I've had with patients using commercial testing thus far, I, I think many patients are highly interested in pursuing surveillance in the absence of detectable ctDNA um, based on the possibility that they've already been cured of disease. I think the issue is, will randomization be acceptable? Um, um, to determine that, and and I'm hoping that it will be because I think this is a critically important question to answer. Agreed. Plus, as you said, they can cross over, right? If they become ctDNA positive, that's, that's absolutely. And right. is that like Tom study within a year or no? We actually so we extend it longer. It's 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 actually up to uh, three years. Three years. Yep. Yeah. Matt, so a couple of questions for me. The first is in the positive group. Because everyone's getting nivolumab or nivolumab plus lag three, the question you're actually asking is not so much about ctDNA, but you're asking whether or not lag three is a better way of clearing ct. The combination is a better way of clearing ctDNA. Yeah, we're, what we're asking is, can we escalate treatment in patients who are the highest risk? And if you look at the overall survival estimates for patients on Invigor 10 who are ctDNA detectable, randomized to a TSO, unfortunately, it's still pretty dismal. Um, so I think we need to try and do better than that. So the LAG3 attempt is actually, a, it's actually an endpoint for, it's an endpoint for a um, an efficacy type trial looking for a combination versus a monotherapy and the results of the trial um, essentially are going to show 
something like you know, respond, uh, CTDA clearance of 20% for a tezolizumab, so let's say it's the same for nivolumab, and it's 40% clearance versus 20% clearance. And that's going to be, that's how you're going to present the data. Is that correct? That, that's correct. So we have a threshold for the phase two endpoint uh, of CTDNA clearance. I'm not going to go into detail about what the what that design is, but but we are looking for an increase in clearance with the combo. And of course, what that brings up is not only sort of the multiple questions that we're trying to address in this study, but also whether or not CTDNA clearance can potentially serve as an intermediate endpoint to screen the activity of novel combinations in the adjuvant setting. And so what happens if the CTA clearance is, is, let's say it's negative and it's 20% versus 20%, but the PFS or the time to put radiologic progression is wildly positive? How would you interpret that? Yeah, so this was a study that was designed in collaboration with multiple, multiple stakeholders. And, you know, it's an NCI-sponsored uh, study within the United States. And so I think we like like we have to do many times, we had to pick an endpoint and stick to it. So that's our phase two endpoint. There was a need to have an early readout based on this, the fact that this is a novel combination in the adjuvant setting. We felt that that was the earliest endpoint in the most novel endpoint that we could employ. Uh, and if we see no difference between clearance, but a signal for time to event endpoints, then that will be hypothesis generated. So essentially, now, you've taken the CTNA results and you're, you know, you've got exploratory biomarker and exploratory combination. And that's quite innovative and has the opportunity to really move the dial some distance. If Invigor 11 comes out and it doesn't show it and it's negative, heaven forbid, how would you interpret that? Let's say the Invigor 11 comes out and doesn't work at all. What effect would that have on your study? I mean, I, I think that adjuvant Nevo is standard of care for all comers right now. And so I think we have to prove that that's not the case. And, and so that's what that's what we're hoping to do. I mean, I think they're complementary studies, right? Because they're kind of asking a bit of different questions. And obviously with Rella in there, you're asking a lag three question. Maybe my my last question, we're coming up on time here, is about lag three and bladder cancer. I don't know much about it, you know, what the biology is and, and you know, it makes sense to combine with Nevo, of course, given the melanoma data, et cetera. But is there specific biology around lag three expression in, in bladder cancer and, and in this setting? Yeah, so there's the, probably some of the most interesting data has to do with these immunophenotypes that were defined by a group at Memorial that was published in Science Translational Medicine, and they they used a, a discovery data set in melanoma and then a validation data set in bladder cancer, and they they actually showed that this lag three uh, CD8 effector. Um, uh, immunophenotype in the peripheral blood in both melanoma and bladder cancer was associated with particularly poor outcomes. So we think that sort of lines up with, with patients who have a worse prognosis and need escalation of treatment. Um, so that that's it, aside from just the biology of LAG3 and that there's not, like many immune checkpoints, there's not an incredibly strong rationale that this is um, necessarily tumor specific, but in mm -hmm. that biology might be enriched in some individuals versus others. Uh, we, we think that that sort of justifies uh, uh, the combination. Yeah, it's worthwhile Tom, last saying, word. Brian, yeah, it's just worthwhile saying that LAG3 has been, uh, been tested in melanoma with success. Uh, it's licensed in melanoma. It's an immune checkpoint. It's expressed um, or it binds to MHC class 2. 
um, and is therefore a novel mechanism. Well, is it is it, a parallel mechanism uh, with PDPDL1, um, sure. and is therefore a logical combination uh, with a track record in melanoma. And so, I think investigating in bladder and kidney cancer makes a whole lot of sense to me, and I'm really excited about uh, the possibility of uh, of looking at data with this. I also think Tigit's an exciting target. Um, those two together, and I'm excited. I think it's a terrific study. I think it's fantastic. We're using novel endpoints. It's a quick endpoint. I think it's clean, and I think it's going to work. And I, I hope it's really successful. Thank you. I appreciate. Yeah. it. Thanks for joining, Matt, and uh, especially two long podcasts. Appreciate. It. We look forward to seeing you in November. Thanks. Great All to right. speak to you.